It's Monday night at 10 p.m., and that means it's the latest episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that combines comics and politics. Uh, this is a show for folks who wonder if Dr. Doom really has a doctorate, and if so, what did he defend his thesis on? <laughs> so tonight we've got a, a pretty packed show, uh, but before we get to all that, I'm joined by the brilliant co-host Alana. How you doing? Hello. And we've got a, uh, I think, uh, only the second person to ever return to the show. Uh, Emma Hubois is coming back for a pretty awesome conversation. So welcome back, Emma. Thank you. I did volunteer as tribute for the second time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully we won't have to fight to the death by the end of the show, though that could be pretty impressive if we do, so... Hey, is um, anyone reading Avengers Academy? I'm actually, I'm actually not, but it seemed like a reasonable question to ask in that moment. But anyhow. <laughs> no, I'm not. There you have it. Uh, Back to you, Brett. <laughs> worst transition ever. Um, all right, so we've got uh, some pretty heavy topics, or should be some pretty interesting topics. Um, should we start with the more depressing of everything and then talk about awesome comics later? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure, <laughs> such excitement. Um, okay, so in this past like week, week and a half or so, um, Shitstorm usually uh, comes up about once every six months, reared its ugly head. So we've got actually three incidents incidences that all kind of have a general theme. Um, the first came up at a panel that was about a PBS documentary that's coming out in October called Superheroes, The NeverEnding Battle. The panel included uh, Todd McFarlane, who is creator of Spawn, uh, Len uh, Wine, Wien, Wine uh, of Wolverine, uh, Wine, um, Jerry Conway, who created uh, The Punisher, and uh, the film's documentary director of Michael Canner. Um, so uh, you can find a great article about this at Think Progress, uh, written by Alyssa Rosenberg. It's great, really kind of sums it all up. Um, but they got into questions about gender in comics, and I'm kind of going through the short version of it all. Um, there are some, uh, a lot of quotes that were pretty amazing in their stupidity. Um, Conway, who created The Punisher, um, said, I think the bigger, uh, when asked about women and uh, diversity and all that in comics, uh, his comment was, I think the bigger question is why readers are not interested in those characters. Comics follow society. They don't lead society. They reflect it. Clearly, he has no um, idea as to the history of comic books, because that's not the case. Um, Tom McFarlane decided to one-up the stupidity factor. Um, he went with, I've got two daughters, <laughs> and if I want to do something... I know a woman. <laughs> uh, yeah, that might have topped everything. My best friend is black. Did you pull that one off too? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My best friend is black. I happen to know a few women. Long pause. Sorry. Um, what did he say about his daughters there? So yes, he said, "I've got two daughters, and if I wanted to do something that I thought was uh, emboldened to a female, I probably wouldn't choose superhero superhero comics." Uh, to get that message across, he suggested that women should uh, watch television, go to movies, or read books. Um, so he's awesome. But then again, he hasn't really done much since Spawn. Um, 
other than buy baseballs that aren't really valuable anymore. Uh, the second incidence of stupidity in this past week and a half, and I really feel like we should be giving out awards for this sort of thing, uh, Mark Millar, who is outspoken, so I at least give him props on that. The guy does speak his mind. Um, and has a movie opening up Friday, so you know, hint, hint, if you're thinking of going to this, maybe this will change your mind. Um, talking about rape and why his comics tend to be really rapey, um, his com- his comment was the ultimate act that would be taboo to show how bad uh, some villain is was to have someone being raped, you know, uh, as if this was an okay act to have in comics. Uh, that is in contrast to Mark Millar of 1999, who said, granted, the female stuff has more of a sexual violence theme, and this is something people should probably watch out for, but rape is a rare thing in comics and is seldom done in, in a exploitative way. So it would be interesting if Mark Millar of 1999 met Mark Millar of 2013. And in the third thing, um, trying to run through everything really quick, in Parent of the Year Award, um, we've got some parents in New York City. Um, sorry, Alana, this just doesn't really shock me that this is going on in New York City. Um, that for fifth-year-old, uh, fifth, five-year-old uh, little boy's birthday, they had a theme of superheroes. So at first, the parents sent a save the date. Um, I'm wondering what parent sends a save the date uh, for a birthday party instead of just the birthday invitation. But it was a save the date. And then the parents decided to uninvite the girls because it was a uh, uh, superhero party and too masculine for the little girls. So it was a question at the uh, New York Times to their social cue as to what the parents should do about this. Um, So we've got a lot of topics, uh, a lot of talking about uh, sexism, gender, roles, um, rape, and a whole bunch of crap in this past week and a half. So you can imagine the storm that kicked up. Um, involving all of this. So, uh, whoever wants to start off off of that one, as I grab water. <laughs> well, I'm, I um, feel it's really sad that now Millar is claiming he was misinterpreted and misquoted, but has yet to put out anything explaining why or how that was. You know. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I'll throw that one in there too because I have actually uh, Bendis's comment. So Brian Michael Bendis, who's a writer that does some pretty progressive stuff at times. Um, mm-hmm. He had a tweet that he uh, later took down, um, and someone asked, you know, I captured your tweet, kind of wondering what happened with it. Uh, uh, Bendis' comment was, uh, I haven't talked to Mark in a while, and he reached out to me and told me that the reporter basically wrote the article he wanted to write, uh, regardless of what Mark uh, said or in what context he said it. So I took it down to give him a pass. I've been there before plenty of times. Does Mark say and do outrageous things? Absolutely. Does it sometimes drive me crazy? Absolutely. But I've been there. He got sideswiped. Um, That being said, Mark Millar has not, that I've seen, has not addressed being misquoted or uh, tried to clear the record at all. He's been focusing on his movie career um, mostly. So back to everyone else. Well, um, I think, I mean, in the case of, of Bendis, um, if you, if you kind of look back at his, at his history, unless he's specifically feuding with one creator, like uh, he had a bit of a back and forth with Morrison back when you know Final Crisis and uh, whatever the the Marvel event that summer was, I think maybe Secret Invasion or whatever. He he's a guy yeah, who's always going to cover for um, the other pros. Uh, so, I mean, it, it is unfortunate to hear him say that and interrogate it a little bit further, but. Um, I also kind of understand how, in a, you know, in a lot of situations, Bendis is the guy who's going to come down and, and reach out and help out the other pros versus the media. I can kind of see how those two things happen. Um, 
so I think I'd kind of personally I'm just gonna ignore what Ben just said and not really, you know, bug him too yeah, much I, about it because that's that's a standard Ben's response to most media controversy with other creators is that he's going to give them the benefit of the doubt um he, on yeah, he, most issues. So Bendis, um, for folks who don't know, and it kind of puts in a little bit more context, is this is a guy who's one of like the main dudes at Marvel. Um, he's writing tons of comics. He really is kind of like driving their vision for been years now at this point. Um, so I, yeah. I say to say he's a company man is not an exaggeration. And uh, Moar is a cash cow for for Marvel for the most part, and they're doing everything they can to keep him and keep make him happy because he has uh, done one creator own series at Image. So clearly he is checking out other waters. So uh, I would not be shocked if that's part of it. Um, so yeah. Oh, that's well. That's really sad and interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I don't. It's, more, it's understandable in a way in I the company politics. Uh, I, yeah, I don't see Marvel losing Mellar at all because I mean to start with, everyone at Marvel has a has an image book right now or like four in the case it's of Fraction, true. right? And I mean Mellar had his own imprint at Top Cow for like five minutes, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't think they're going to lose him because Mellar's key into Hollywood right now is consulting on the uh, uh, on the Avengers and, and the mainstream stuff, right? I mean. You know, Kickass is is going to be a, a drop in the bucket compared to what he can do um, if he you know if he stays you know consulting on uh, on the Avengers and the other stuff. And I think maybe that's more important to talk about in terms of like what um, opinions he harbors on this stuff rather than his other stuff, right? Because you know he goes a long way towards shaping the kind of portrayals these characters are going to have in other media if he's. Yeah more on the Hollywood side of Marvel than the comic side. So there's two big distinctions there now. Um, and, and that seems to be kind of the case of DC too, right? When a bunch of guys from Marvel kind of left the comic thing and they're doing Hollywood stuff now, right? And DC moved a bunch of their guys there. So that's where I'm concerned. But I don't see the contradiction in what he supposedly said this time relative to his response to women in the refrigerator. Um, because in both instances, he is dismissing it, right? He is dismissing the yeah. criticism and treating rape as like a, a neutral act. It's one thing, you know, and not there's no nuance to what he's saying. There he's saying, like, well, yeah, you kind of have to watch out for it, but I don't think it's an issue back in 98. And that's roughly around when he was writing... Um, uh, God, the uh, what is that called? The Midnight or Apollo? The Authority, sorry. Authority, authority. and yeah. the, the Authority. I and thought he was a little bit later than that when he was on the Authority. It was a bit later, yeah, but it's yeah. Um, within five years, let's say. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> no, that would have been right around when Alice was writing it, right? Yeah. But and you know, so I think I'm not. I'm less interested in what Miller is saying perfect, um, publicly because he does have the wiggle room to say, oh, I was misquoted, if he wants to say that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think his body of work speaks for itself. Uh, yeah. And, and comics, comics Alliance did a pretty good takedown, um, and they really mostly focused on uh, the, the gang rape in, in Kick-Ass 2, which do we know if that's going to be in the movie or not? 
It is not. It's not going to be in the movie because that's it is not movie. <laughs> and and yeah, I. Most- and I'll, I'll say outright, like, so the first Kick-Ass, while it's, it's uber-violence, and I, I enjoyed it, Kick-Ass 2, I enjoyed up to that point. That happened. I said, there's no freaking reason this should be in this comic, and it actually totally turned me off of the series. It was so over the top. It didn't need to be there. There was other things that could have been done, um, and it would still involve, you know, refrigerating a character in a way. But it was – it's brutal if you haven't read it, and the fact that it's, a like, an underage kid, it makes me even more want to vomit. Well, what kills it is that it's not that it's wrong to have rapes happen in comics. It's wrong mm-hmm. for the rape to not mean something to the character who it happens to, and for it not to be a exactly. that character's story. Yeah. So I just want to make that – I know a lot of commenters have said that, a lot of bloggers have said but I just want to restate that for our listeners. It's not that it's wrong to have a rape, although it's probably wrong because that's the only thing you have going on ever, but it's wrong to make the rape be about how the person who isn't raped goes on to deal with it and about their story and not about the actual person who this happens to. And it's wrong to – as Millar very clearly says, not understand how rape is different from like being frozen in stone by the gray gargoyle. One his, of those things his, his is something that I yes. Well, that's comparison. yeah, that's stupid. <laughs> that's that's yeah. that's obscene. Um, yeah. But and this this is kind of the moment where you know we have to reiterate that fridging does not mean any act of violence against a female character. Uh, in, in fiction, and even if you go back to the very, very original usage, like when, you know, when Gail Simone coined that phrase, um, it specifically meant an act of violence perpetrated against a female character, like um, Elena said, in order to, you know, uh, further the emotional arc, or you know, man pain, if you will, um, of yeah. of the male protagonist, right? Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's pronounced Ilana. <laughs> Elon, uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. And that's what this this story was like. I there was, it was totally um, the since the scene's not in the comics, not like it matters, uh, or in the movie, it's not like we're spoiling anything. Mm-hmm. So, and this was the red mist um, getting at Kickass, and to do that, he and his group uh, gang raped this, his Kickass's girlfriend, and that was it. There was no like. From her perspective, afterwards, it was clearly to piss him off, and yeah, I mean, it was pretty. It, it's brutal. I mean, the fact that it was also like kids made it even more disturbing in a way. Like, it's just there was no reason it needed to be in the comic. Um, but one thing I kind of want to point out quickly, though, is that just because it even happens to the protagonist. Um, of a given story, or if the character deals with it, it that doesn't necessarily justify it, right? Um, right. Because if you think back to like, let's say, um, like Kate Bishop, um, and uh, and Black Cat, right? Where where those two, they had these origins given to them, where that's the reason for being superheroes, and it's kind of again and again, uh, there there's a trend there where a lot of female superheroes who aren't um, you know, super-powered in the conventional sense, that's where their origin is. You know, it's kind of, you know, a lot of these guys kind of scratch their heads and they can't understand why a woman would be a superhero. Like, oh, okay, she had to be a victim of this specific crime in order for her to want to go on to do whatever. So it just kind of builds these things where it's always in reaction to men and they just kind of, I don't know what to do here, so I'll just throw in a rape scene, you know. 
it, it just mm-hmm. used flippantly, right? And there are clearly not people who are actually talking to rivals of race to have any understanding of what experience could be like for different people. And it's just a, it's a lazy and stupid thing. And, um, you know, Millar is using it for shock effects. And it frustrates me because a few of the things that he did when he was at the authority, I think are some of the best things that were done that decade. You know, one of the most radical things that happened in any superhero comic was having a writer acknowledge that maybe the powers that be don't want the world to be a better place. And so, therefore, and not, not that they want a supervillain to win, but that they don't want actual change to happen and superheroes threaten the status quo. And him doing that in the authority was amazing. But I've never read anything else by the guy that I had any, even a modicum of respect for, to be honest. And even then, that sub-story was super fucking rapey. Yeah, that that was yeah, and that's the thing. It also included the most awful. Uh, well, I haven't read. No, sorry, the second most awful instances of it um, that he's ever written, um, and and you know, and, and the way that he treated it, uh, you know, when it was happening to Apollo as well as to you know all the female characters, and even you know when they dug up. Uh, okay, well, this got cut because there's actually a bunch of stuff that got cut from his authority that they wouldn't let him do. Um, do do you know? Do like, you tell? Yeah, because uh, you know, like the soccer hooligan guy, uh, who was yeah. like sort of their, their version of Jenny. Well, yeah. hmm, they kind of well, Art Adams drew him that way, um, which is kind of weird because I don't know that Beckham was <laughs> would have been the best example anyway. But um, yeah, that that character, he he had them dig up uh, Jenny Sparks' corpse so that he could have sex with it. And a lot of like the specific panels and the scenes that did happen get cut back. And I do think that that Art Adams is a guy you really do have to talk about at the same time because he was drawing all that stuff and the way that he draws it and the way that he draws women. He's, to me, if you want to interrogate Mark Miller's use of it there and really all of his comics, you have to look at the artists um, who he was collaborating with on all these projects and say, hey, because I mean, Look at what he, uh, you know, what Adam was drawing in um, during AVX. That whole really gross issue of the, you know, the miniseries where it was just the fights between the two. Yep. A uh-huh. versus X. Um, versus. There were some, yeah, exactly. There were some fun ones, but there were some really gross ones. And the worst one was Hawkeye just having these uh, like girl fight daydreams, and that was the whole thing. I'm trying to remember that. I remember Hawkeye. I think I'm thinking of A plus X. I remember there was one with Hawkeye and Gambit, but I think that was A plus X. I gotta go back with the AVX because I don't remember that for some reason. Oh no, I told well, you. Yeah, probably... I do remember that. I do remember it was. Yeah, yeah it was. It made no sense. It well, made no it makes sense perfect with... sense. <laughs> well, I mean, it was, like it... because they they just want to justify that the gross objectification somehow. I mean, it made no sense in the story. You know. <laughs> No, no, it didn't. But I mean, the motivations yeah. for it, for, to me, oh, were yeah. clear. But no, it yeah. it was complete nonsense. It certainly wasn't the magic um, uh, Black Widow fight by any means. I mean, there, so there's there's also there's this humor because while this is all going down, and I don't know if any of you notices, um, so I've been going through and catching up and reading my comics. While all this debate is occurring over the last like week, week and a half, um, Marvel's been advertising in their comics uh, women of Marvel cards that has, like, all the women in really, like, in skimpy outfits 
that aren't their normal costumes. It kind of threw back to the old swimsuit specials. And the whole time uh-huh. I'm seeing this, I'm thinking about the comments from, you know, McFarlane, Millar, um, Conway, all those guys being like, this is just the worst timing of advertisement ever. And you're completely pissing me off every time I saw it. Um, which also shows you, like, where their their mindset is and the fact that this is being advertised in every freaking comic during that time period. You know, I'll defend the swimsuit comic concept. <laughs> because in theory, follow me here, in, in theory it should be, um, as long as characters aren't being portrayed in, in really just gross ways and, and you don't have just obscene, you know, anatomy going on, in, in general, that should be kind of one of those sort of liminal spaces to explore sexualized bodies. And you know what? Some of those 90s ones were pretty cool. Like the um, the X-Men ones, they were mm-hmm. they were open, or what do you call it, equal opportunity like that. Yeah. Um, the fashion was goofy as heck, but there's that one yes. of uh, oh my God. with, the, with the, like, the trunks that are longer than his, his cutoffs. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, mean, like, uh, but I couldn't. But the I, image but even, itself, I, even as a kid, know. even as a kid, I was like, this fashion yeah. is too bad for this to be hot. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but I understand I'm what you're saying. Yeah. In theory, not in practice. Like yeah. I don't know if if Cameron Stewart or or um, or Steve Rude or you know uh, the the Hernandez brothers or somebody like that who knows what they're doing, um, mm. were running it right, yeah. then then I, it would have been cool. That I could yeah. Yeah. Who yeah. knows? Yeah. You know, and of course, like our you know people's tolerance for that would be so different if it wasn't for the fact that everything was always being made into cheesecake. Like if you, exactly. you could have cheesecake, yeah. if it wasn't everything being made into cheesecake, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think, but I I think that's, but the the idea is great, but yeah, in in the modern context, it is pretty yeah whack. And I'm trying to and find, a, mm-hmm. I'm trying to find a quote from the guys. I'm keeping on talking. They they addressed the equal opportunity sexism on this panel, so uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to dig that down and jump into it. Uh, but yeah, go with your thought because this totally reminds me of of that equally idiotic quote that was given. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I definitely feel like some of the, like, I've seen comic book writers who I follow on Twitter, like, be dismissive to Eliz- uh, Alyssa Rosenberg's amazing article in um, that she wrote about that comic book history panel where all this horrible sexist BS was exposed again. Um, and I mm. feel like they are missing the point. And I've heard them try to claim that she was. And it's like, I think that you do need to take a moment and really actually listen to someone other than yourself, talk. So here's the quote. Uh, um, so this was also said by Todd McFarlane. Uh, as much as we stereotype the women, we do it with the guys. The guys are all good-looking, not too many ugly superheroes. They all got their hair gelled back. They have got perfect pecs on them. That's what women no like. What's that? <clears throat> Sorry, because that's what women like. <laughs> <I roll>. uh, <laughs> um, they have no hair on their chest. I mean, they are Ryan Gosling on steroids, right? Uh, they're all beautiful, so we actually stereotype and do it with both sexes. We just happen to show a little more skin when it comes to the ladies. And immediately, I'm running through my head of all the ugly-looking guys, Hulk, Puck, um, or different just body shapes. And then you compare Hulk to She-Hulk, which is, I think, the perfect example of how messed up this mm-hmm. is. Um, yeah. no, and how wrong McFarlane is in that statement. Actually, I can I can sum it up for three, in three words for you. Um, could you... Subject, object, dichotomy. Done. Because mm-hmm. 
even even when you run into a in a situation where with a guy like Ed Bennis, whose male anatomy is just as absurd as his female anatomy, um, and people try to point to him as this guy who draws people um, sexualized the same according to gender, but you're not going deep enough because it's the way that they're being sexualized. Who's the subject? Who's the object? Right? How are they being posed? Because, I mean, we all remember the Hawkeye Project, right? Mm-hmm. And and that said it all, but of course, unfortunately, that just you know spiraled into a nightmare of you know. <laughs> oh look, it's funny because he's in effeminate poses, right? Yeah, yeah. It became um, a parody of itself. It, well, it's not just it, that, yeah. but it became it became sexist. not a parody, like, but I a, mean. And it became yeah. it became, became homophobic. It became like, ooh, men looking feminine is bad. Basically, yeah, yeah. That wasn't the point. I wouldn't the call that was homophobic. Like, it was a we lot of we things. Be, I mean, I, the one thing we want to be careful is not to, um, you know, like anti-feminine rhetoric is, is not homophobic per se because there's plenty of masculine uh, performances of of male queerness. It's more just uh, to me. It's just more of a deeper idea of of sexism in the sense that anything the normativity, um, you know, sees as being feminine regardless of its orientation is, you know, weak or artificial or, or to be laughed at, right? To be laughed at, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's... And that's not, I, that's yeah. not, that's not the fault of the creators of the project. It just became, it became no, that it was the, what people yeah. were submitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if I could take a sec... Um, to say why I don't think those three guys should have been on that panel, or, or why yes, those three guys please. shouldn't be talking about gender. Um, well, okay, sorry. Um, you know what? Here's the thing. I'm largely okay with McFarlane talking about gender, sort of. Um, I'm more okay with him. How masculine it is and how what kind of a minefield it is for female readers. So I think he is kind of cognizant of that when he says that, I think. But McFarlane's pretty vague, so who knows? Maybe he just meant, maybe he didn't mean that. But you could see it that way. I'd, I'd have to ask him a follow-up question on that. But the other thing is, and something that you know obviously could have been you know uh, portrayed better along the way in his comics, is McFarlane's a guy who means well most of what he does, but he failed in execution. Because remember, even though you never see Spawn under his mask ever, Al Simmons is a black guy. Um, I didn't even know that the, for a while when exactly, I read the comic. The, yeah. Oh, but here's the thing. If you read from the beginning, almost the entire supporting cast is black. Just the bad guy isn't, right? Jason yep. Wynn or whatever his name is. Yep. Uh, Terry, his best friend, you know, um, black dude, his wife, their kids, um, and slowly developing like maybe one every 10 or 50 issues, there was the whole thing with, you know, Terry and Wanda getting together and moving forward and raising those kids. So even though you never actually saw it portrayed as such, I mean, and even – you know, McFarlane said when he kind of got the idea to make Spawn, he was kind of thinking, well, how do we know that Spider-Man is actually white under the mask? You know, we assume that he is because of his, you know, because he's fighting crime as opposed to being a criminal, you know, due to stereotyping. So he has some good ideas, but the problem with Todd McFarlane, why he shouldn't be talking about, um, why why he shouldn't be invited. If he's invited, he's going to say something. But why he shouldn't be invited is he lived in a bubble outside of comics history and his entire, like that whole image crew for the most part are the laziest, most um, plagiaristic creators in comics history. And there's been a lot of plagiarizers and a lot of thieves, you know. Um, But 
McFarlane drew Spider-Man for how long? And then he went on and drew a guy with the exact same friggin' mask. You know? And then Rob Liefeld, when, when he created Deadpool, he just changed one letter of Deathstroke's um, civilian name. You know, Slade Wilson, Wade Wilson. And, and all this kind of stuff. And all these guys' characters, when they created them at Image, were just a pure reflection of, of what they were creating at Marvel. They didn't really have their own ideas. They just had a huge potential audience, and they didn't want to collaborate with people anymore, you know. And I guess that's kind of, I mean, you know, I can understand why they wouldn't because of what the working situations were at Marvel, but these were guys that thought they had the greatest ideas in the world, and they didn't. So why are they talking about history? Because they don't, you know, to me, they didn't participate in comics history, most of them. Maybe Jim Lee would be a better guy to talk about it because he's kind of seen both sides of the fence because he's gone back and forth so much. But I don't see McFarlane in that role. Um, and Len Wein, I mean, to start with, they introduced him um, in the in the article about it uh, as being editor-in-chief when The Watchmen was written, which is giving him, which is kind of implying he had a lot to do with The Watchmen, when we all know Karen Berger had a lot more to do with that. And... But Len Wein was the editor-in-chief when The Killing Joke got written. Yep. And we have to remember, remember what he said to, well, what he reportedly said to Alan Moore when Moore asked if he could uh, cripple Barbara in that story. You know, it, it, it was some variation of, you know, go ahead and kill the bitch if you want. That's Len Wein at his desk on women in comics, right? Yeah. Uh, and you you kind of alluded to this in talking about Conway. And with The Punisher, because The Punisher has to be one of the longest, most drawn-out incidences of fridging in history, right? Because <laughs> that man pain has mm-hmm. sustained him through every single iteration and every single appearance since he first showed up. It's, it's spanning decades now. Um, and he's actually kind of the inventor of fridging in modern comics, because he also wrote the death of Gwen Stacy. But in fairness, wow. with the, yeah. But in fairness, with right. the, uh, yeah, I mean, with the gap. But in fairness, with the Punisher, at least the Punisher is just a ripoff of every seventies uh, um, uh, vigilante movie there was. I mean, it's like Death Wish in comics, basically. Yeah, so but that's even my, then, that's, that's not a creative point exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just pointing point that exactly. out. Like, yeah. So he he's the guy who knows how to like you know how Seth MacFarlane just drags the joke out until you're forced to laugh at it. It's That's what Conway does or sets up. Because, I mean, to this day, you're still reading Spider-Man comics where he's fondly remembering um, or guilt or being guilty, feeling guilty over Gwen Stacy. You know, that's haunted him more than Uncle Ben throughout the comics. I mean, remember Straczynski's run where they were trying to set it up where it was like, did she or did she not sleep with Norman and, and have those kids with him? They they keep, you know, beating Gwen Stacy's corpse, and, and, and Conway was the one who set the tone for that, who wrote that. So, I mean, you got to interrogate. We have to, you know, interrogate who's allowed to tell our histories, right? And that's another problem, obviously, with Stan Lee, because he's taking way more credit for the stuff that he did than he should be. But in this case, it's kind of more noxious, because you're asking these guys about women in comics, and one of them has no record, (laughs) 
essentially no yeah. record on women in comics, and the other two have two of the dodgiest um, records there are. I mean, who who would you have to drag out to be worse than those two? Like well, um, Dave yeah. Sim, right? Or or <laughs> you know R. Crumb or something? You'd have to really look long, long and hard. No, and I don't. That makes sense. And I really want you to write something about what you just said because like, it, I, I hadn't really made those connections, and that's a great way to look at yeah. the Punisher. And it also explains a lot about why I've never cared for the character in the slightest at all, although he's got a good fashion sense. Um, but <laughs> you know, the thing is, so this, this event, this event was a media, a big media to do with comics creation history, and any opportunity that you know, if I were a journalist who covered that as my regular beat. As, you know, I would I would ask those questions. I would, no matter who it was, because if we're not forcing people to confront those things, then they will continue to ignore them. And even if all those guys made an ass of themselves in and out of that minute, I assure you, they're at least thought about things as a result of it. Whether they will ever apologize or express themselves differently, I do think it'll impact what they do moving forward. I don't. I don't think it will. Yeah, I know. Well, um, well, most of them aren't really doing anything anymore. I mean, McFarland's sort of exactly. writing again. McFarlane but, is, yeah. But the rest of them, and McFarland's got Haunt, if Haunt is even still around. He's doing Spawn and buying baseballs. Um, I mean, he's not really he's doing that. toys. And toys. I'm sorry, yeah, I forgot the toys. toys. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he's made, he made his killing on toys, and he checked out at that point. Um but none, no, none of them are really doing crazy stuff now that has an impact or people are going to be reading or um, any of that. I mean, it's, yeah, like, I don't, they might think about it, but I don't think they have any way to do something about it at this point. Well, that's part of the dialogue that people are having now. I mean, and I just think yeah. that any time you have those people, I'm going to, I think it's important to ask those questions. Especially just because, like, in the context of this being a documentary about the history of comics. Like, this is part of the history of comics. But the thing that, that drives me nuts what is, so, the it's about this documentary about this history of comics and superheroes, but they've, like, totally ignored the history of comics when discussing about this. Like, one of them said that comics reflects society, doesn't lead society, when that's not been the case for the history of comics. Yeah. Like, when comics Ever. were founded... It's never been the case. No, when comics were founded as a comic strip... They were in newspapers, and there were commentary about society at the time. They were talking about the haves and have-nots and immigrants and the, their daily lives and what they were going through. Um, the example I will always throw out there as comics advocating for something is Captain America. His first appearance a year before Pearl Harbor was advocating yes. into World War II. It was written by Jews. Uh, Jewish writers who couldn't get a job elsewhere, and that's the other thing that these guys ignored. Comic industry was founded by immigrants who could not get jobs anywhere else, and it wasn't just Jewish writers. It was women and African Americans who could not get jobs anywhere else, and there's tons of history on this that that uh, that talks about this. Like The women that created the comic industry is one of the most underreported things. Uh, when it comes to the history of comics. But the fact that these guys make this statement tells me that they don't even know the history of the industry that they're in, which drew, drives me nuts uh, and well, says that these guys should be on the panel. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's only one decade in which superheroes did not lead culture. Um, and that was what, like for half of the 50s or something when they were in that slump before yeah. you know Jack Kirby and the big revitalization. Uh, every other decade, every other decade. I mean, look at okay, look at when Todd McFarlane was active. Um, 
where comics w- were coming from and how they were fueling um, culture. Like, everyone was getting Spider-Man tattoos. I'm sure as soon as they re-legalized tattooing in New York, people were getting, you know, Tom and Farland Spider-Man tattoos. They do. Mm-hmm. I've seen Wait, them. Were um, tattoos illegal in New York? Yeah, they were. Yeah, tattooing was illegal for New York for decades. Huh, didn't know that. Um, but, I mean, look at the Wu-Tang Clan. I know I'm always going to come back to the Wu-Tang Clan, but we really should. I mean, you know, it got to the point where, like, Ghostface Killer's debut album is called Iron Man. He's sitting there in, like, a, a North Face jacket that's um, that's red and yellow. And one of his, his alternate names is Tony Sparks, right? He had his um, – one of his songs was in the movie, and his, his cameo got cut, but you can see it on the DVD. Um, the Riddler, for God's sake, was on the, uh, um, you know, was the song by Method Man, the most popular of the Wu-Tang Clan, one of the biggest, best-selling rappers of the era. Um, you know, one of the only guys who got to, well, pretty much the only guest appearance on Biggie's debut album, and there he is, rapping about a Batman villain for the Batman movie. And one of the you best know? cribs ever. Oh, Sorry. I thought you were going to say one of the best Batman movies ever. No, one of the best Cribs episodes ever, if anyone's ever watched it, was Method Man. Oh, when they're, like, playing um, dice on the pool table and stuff? Yeah. And there's, like, but, nothing in their apartment. No. Yeah. And, I mean, look at how second-wave feminists appropriated Wonder, Wonder Woman and the Linda Carter um, Wonder yeah. Woman character as their, like, symbol, uh, which is hilarious because, to me, Wonder Woman is problematic for the same reasons that second-wave feminists are, but... Um, they did that. They took that as a cultural symbol and said, yoink, we're going to appropriate this. We're going to take it from you. Um, even though they didn't have a history or an engagement within the comics, they still looked at it and said, I'm going to take that. Um, because they saw the power in it. Superheroes mm-hmm. have led culture since the beginning because they are the last living mythology. Yeah. In history, like that that's it. And and to say that now, when they're completely taking over Hollywood, I I don't know I mean, I don't know what, what kind of a bubble we have to live in to make a statement like that. I think it was a throwaway line and he wasn't really thinking. I think that's really it. Yeah. Yeah, at that point sure. I think he was defensive and was just throwing stuff out there to try to defend what they were saying. but uh, I mean, and maybe they're feeling like the industry doesn't lead because the industry is just worried about money. But that's not what... It's not honestly, what we've right. said on the show a million times, if the, industry, if the industry was interested in money, they would take our money and they would create comics that a diverse group of people would read. And they wouldn't insult the fans who don't admit their narrative definition, who they already have. So if that was, if they were interested in the money and weren't being complete assholes, that, that is what they would do. Well, I think they are interested in money. They're just going about the wrong way to get that money. Um, like, if you look at what DC is doing with the new 52, um, and, and I compare it in the email to what the GOP is doing, their base is shrinking. So they're pandering harder to their base to try to recover yeah. instead of stepping outwards and taking a risk. And that's what DC did. Like, when they pulled in Bob Harris, like, he was the guy that was editing the most of the image founders at Marvel in the 90s because people at DC looked back and said, when was the last time we sold a lot of comics? Like, a lot of comics. It was the early 1990s, and they said, who were making those comics? These guys. So let's bring them back, you know, regressing the tone of our entire line down to what was happening then, and they'll sell really well again without thinking that the culture has moved on, and there was a reason there was such a huge bottoming out 
when the speculator market collapsed and, you know, Marvel got bought by that toy company or whatever it was that happened, um, they looked back with a very selective view of history and they said, this is the way they're going to do it. When they should have looked way further back to, um, you know, sort of the, the pre-Frederick Wortham days when horror comics and romance comics were ruling the roost, right? In or the, yeah. the 50s, right? Um, and the horror comics got completely gutted, gutted by Wortham yep. and the CCA. And so what happened to superhero comics was all that other cultural um, output just got subsumed into them, right? Because if you look at stuff like Hellblazer, uh, you know, Swamp Thing, The Creeper, all that kind of stuff, tonally, that's where it went. Like, it, it goes way back to the EC stuff. And there were even some, you know, creators who wrote those days out. Whereas the romance comics, well, geez, they just turned into Archie and the X-Men. Right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like... So it's more... Yeah. I'm trying to find the, the exact quote about the leading. Um, but, I mean, there was... It's, like... Uh, I mean, there it actually is almost a quote of, like, some of my friends are black in here with... Um, um, uh, when uh, talks about how he created Storm and he looked at Storm as a human being and it wasn't Black Storm, she was Storm. So he kind of threw that out there of, like... Um, you know, as his kind of escape card. Um, yeah, I just... Uh, it's just so frustrating. I, yeah. Well, and can we... Yeah. yeah. Can we talk about the crappy parents? Uh, <laughs> talk about what? The, the crappy parents? Well, we could, oh, but aren't they just New York yuppies? You know, I I don't think it's specific to the region or the class. I think it's parents just <laughs> generally trying to push their yeah. hand. Yeah, I mean, the fact that they want to save the date might be related to their city and their class, but not the fact that they decide yeah. that they're policing which kids are supposed to, like, what things. I mean, that's just a problem that you see in lots of different places. But I do feel anecdotally, and, you know, I'm not a parent, but I do watch too many cartoons, that there's more focus put on having girls do quote-unquote girl things and boys do quote-unquote boy things now than there was when I was a kid growing up in the 80s. I, I disagree. really frightening. I strongly disagree. Um, one thing I'm going to point to is Adventure Time, which is maybe a little kid's show. Um, it skews more towards preteens. Um, yeah. But when we look at the themes of female cooperation and, you know, Marceline the Vampire Queen and, and that kind of stuff, it's a male-led show, but the female characters are independent and doing that kind of stuff. But, you know, what about the new My Little Pony cartoon um, relative to the old My Little Pony cartoon from the 80s? Um, you've got characters like Rainbow Dash. Um, I, I don't want to get too much into the whole, you know, she's got a la- rainbow mane, so obviously she's a queer metaphor, but... Um, less so much that, but the fact that, you know, she's a jock, she's a sporty one, um, and she isn't so much into feminine presentation, um, and more like even the fashion pony rarity, she's not the fashion pony, she's the creative pony, she's the entrepreneur, and she's also where the show, um, unpacks, uh, class issues, and, you know, Applejack is like, she's like the business pony, right, she's the entrepreneur, um, who's all about, and she's running that family, right? They've got the grandma, yeah. and they've got, 
the big dopey, you know, brother, a yep, right? He's not running the show. He's not ruling the roost in the Apple family and keeping, you know, uh, the orchard open. She is, right? I mean, that's one property. Where I'm going to go ahead and say that it, it, it really is more of a multiple or any expressions um, of femininity uh, are valid. And even the way the whole princess thing works, right, where you do have like this, it's a matriarchal society with these two princesses, you know, immortal princesses who are ruling things. But Twilight Sparkle's arc um, is that, you know, she became a princess at the end of the last season, but it wasn't a thing where, you know, they found out, oh, okay, well, your actual birth parents were, you know, nobles or aristocrats or whatever. She earned that title, um, you know, as more of a degree, right? She graduated from her training to become it. So it was more, again, like Adventure Time, where they're mm-hmm. subverting what royalty means. So but I think that those kinda, comics are. I mean, I think that those cartoons are beloved and amazing, and the reason we love them is because they're so good in those ways. But they actually stand out, and those are not the norm. And I think one of the reasons I why think, the royalty uh, shows are so successful is because there's such a need for them to exist. But if you go mm-hmm. into look at the toy aisle, and if you look at the shitty cartoons that you don't really, that people like us don't really want to watch. The stuff that like only kids watch because they don't know any better. Basically, it's 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 terribly sexist and just completely. Girls are like this and boys are like that, and they will write out any female characters out of the quote unquote, you know, like little boy stuff. The stuff that's aimed at the stuff that's subtly aimed at, at adults actually, like you know, like the, like that like the um, Young Justice cartoon. Long may it rest. Oh my God, I love that show. That that actually is egalitarian, but it's also frankly aimed at us. And it's not aimed at children. I mean, well, that's why you, I hate that yeah. show. Oh, you didn't like Young Justice. That's why I hate Young Justice. Justice. I do because oh. it pandered too much to the adults and that kind of stuff. Um, the last DC superhero cartoon that I thought was amazing and hit all the right um, notes was Batman and Brave and the Bold. Mm. You know, because it, it went for the dick spraying, went for the colorful and that, and it was like if the adults don't get this and they don't like the material that we're referencing. Screw you. It's Dietrich Bader as Batman, you know? Because I'll I'll say this. When I was a kid growing up with a Bruce, um, or sorry, with a Bruce Tim one, I didn't like it that much. It was too dark. It was all Art Deco. I mean, I loved Harley Quinn. Oh, it's very dark. Always. Because she's kind of like one of the few, um, you know, one of the few ways that they they traced the history back a little bit and had some fun, like Harley's Holiday or whatever it's called, the one where she's Uh trying to stay out of trouble. Is amazing and so it's good. great, but yeah. But I had you know on a time slot as a kid after school the Bruce Tim Batman and the Adam West show, you know. And to this day, I way prefer the Adam West show, especially for kids. I don't think I'd show um, the Bruce Tim show to kids as an adult to mm-hmm. watch it. It's great because you got that Rashomon episode right with POV. You can learn so much about storytelling uh, and story yeah. structure from watching those guys. So from that perspective, yeah, it's amazing, but I wouldn't show it to a six-year-old kid. I mean, like, Batman's, like, yeah. killing ninjas and stuff. Like, and Well, yeah, like, you, but that's not for a yeah. six-year-old kid. I mean, and I was, I'm was i older than you, and I was, so I was in, I guess, late days <laughs> when it came out, and I just thought it was the best thing yeah. in the world. You know, I mean, yeah. I totally get it. Like, Young Justice wasn't for 
wasn't for young kids and like they shouldn't have it. so the name you know and people that's one of the problems anything that has that looks like it's about teens people think it's for teens so that's not necessarily the case but um but you know I do think that like my you know friendship is magic and Adventure Time are really standouts and I mean that's what we love talking about them and that's why they have such a huge fan yeah. rate but it's also because they're needed but I don't think that that's the norm I think those are the well, like those are the best you know what I mean let me hit you with a, with with a stat though. Um, Mattel is projecting that Monster High sales of the Monster High dolls are going to surpass the sales of the Barbie dolls for the first time this year. Okay, what the hell is that's Monster huge. High. See, there you go. Um, <laughs> I am googling right some, now. <laughs> it's now. I'm not going to say it's perfect. Okay, I'm absolutely not because the dolls are still, you know, they're pretty unrealistic. They're very kind of skinny. Um, but they're they're not Huge as noxious as brats. Huge has little bodies, um, so they are very kind of thin and willy. But they're very racially diverse, and the key thing is that it explores monstrousness, which is why I love them. And it's based on a young adult series, and the main character is Frankie Stein. So I probably don't have to tell you what she looks like. She's you know because mm-hmm. all the kids, the the first line like the main set are all the children of the Universal monsters, right? So. But they use that to explore different issues right. that would other children. I mean, the Frankie Stein character is this, um, and I'm sure she was intended as this, but it's actually a really wild and cutting um, sort of uh, portrayal or can be uh, interpreted as a trans portrayal very easily. Mm. Um, not because she was made from spare parts, but because um, her parents you know, wanted her to cake herself up in like all this makeup so she wouldn't look green and would fit in, and they pushed her really hard to conform to a certain image so that she could go to a nor- quote-unquote normal school with normal, not undead kids. Um, and she was miserable, and they were worried. They are like, oh, my God, if her makeup slips, they're going to murder her, right? If they find out what she really is, they're going to kill her. You know, the whole pitchforks and stuff from the actual Frankenstein stories. So then... I'm not sure exactly how it happens, but they end up finding out about Monster High, and they put her there, and she loves it because all the kids are freaky. Like, um, the werewolf girl, like, for her, she's got body hair issues out the wazoo, right? And so on and so forth. Um, So all these characters, really, they all reflect something that could... It's really like a modern X-Men kind of a thing, in that sense. But it picks specific issues that would make you gross in order of society, but it makes them exceptional and cool and monster high. If that makes sense. Okay, I'm uh-huh. fascinated by the series. Now, and, I'm like Googling and checking this out. This is kind of amazing. And they're going to outsell Barbie dolls. They're going to kill Barbie. Huh. That's what Mattel is projecting sales-wise. Okay, so this thing's been around for three years, and I've never heard of it. Yeah. And it's exploding. I've seen all the ads. I've seen the ads, but I've not seen the show. I have, like, a dozen of the dolls. <laughs> There's no actual <laughs> show. It's just a toy line. There's little, like, short web cartoons, um, oh, but it's based on, like, like prose. It's a prose series. Huh. Really? There's no cartoon? No, not, like, on TV all the time. There's little shorts wow. on the website. It's a, it's a prose thing. I'm I'm fascinated by this. I've never even heard of this. 
I'm actually almost more so, impressed with the fact that they're outselling Barbie and they don't have a cartoon. Like that's pretty amazing. Not that not Barbie doesn't have an actual broadcast uh, anyway, but you get the idea. I'm more that's amazed. Really remarkable. Yeah, I'm more amazed they haven't made a cartoon considering that's what they did in the 80s to sell toys. Well, after, you know, Reagan repealed that law that allowed them to yeah, do it. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 sorry. Little piece of history on that one, but yeah. yeah. I do want to make sure that we could talk at least a little bit about Adventure Time um, this week. <laughs> uh, Speaking of. Some of the how and the whys, we all love it so much. I think actually it's interesting. Brett has, does not watch the show, but does read the comic book. Yes. Da, 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 which is unusual. I mean, it might actually be the only person in the world who fits that. But. So I've, I've tried watching the TV show. Um, I mean, you guys go crazy and talk about what you want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like the comic. It, it's entertaining. I think it's really cute. It gets me to laugh. I've actually tried watching the TV show, and for some reason, it doesn't hit me the same way. Maybe I'm just not watching the right episodes, but I don't enjoy it as much for some reason. And maybe that's because I started reading Bravest Warriors first and then I started reading Adventure Time, and I feel like the comic Adventure Time is more reflective of... It's more similar to Bravest Warriors than Adventure Time, the comic, is to the TV series, but that's just me in my reading of it. Um, It's great, though. It's really entertaining. And you'll be... Did you try watching from the beginning? No, I I know I need to do that. Um, you'll both be really happy to know, though. Maybe so, you don't. Yeah. Uh, so at uh, Otakon, which was this past weekend, which is this like huge anime manga thing, um, the amount of people dressed in Adventure Time cosplay was amazing. Um, everywhere I looked, there was someone in some Adventure Time outfit. So it was really kind of cool to see. Um, that was the first time I saw like that amount. I've seen it before, but not to this extent. It was. Kind of obnoxious. <laughs> it was great costumes, though. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge cultural shift because I remember at 2006 at the San Diego Comic Convention, um, anime was was eroding um, traditional comics, or not yeah. so traditional, sorry, American comics. <laughs> Wrong word, because I was thinking animation when I said that. Um, you know, the Japanese output was was very quickly eroding, you know, there was more, there's not a single Batman. So there was one Batman. One Batman I saw um, was uh, was a black dude at the new 52 panel, or no, the 52 panel. And I think it was Tadio asked him why he was dressed up as Batman. And he said because Mr. Terrific was too expensive um, or something like that. But that was the one Batman I saw. And there was like a dozen Naruto's, right? And, and, and all characters from that. And it was so weird, like, are American superheroes going to die? Right? Like, what's going to happen? You know, and then, but now you see, like, at Otakon, it's just been, <laughs> you know, there's a tsunami of adventure time. So I think that's a that's a wild um, cultural shift there. Yeah, I had I mean, a good was... run of getting friends who don't particularly watch, friends who like cartoons but aren't huge cartoon addicts. I've definitely been able to get or who used to watch them and don't mind watching this much anymore, but been definitely been really easy to get those folks into the show. I've had a bit more of a struggle getting folks who like the show but don't read comics to read the comics. Um, I think one of my friends is finally starting to trudge through the big pile I lent her. My social circle is almost all people who, who read comics, and we all watch the show, so it's, I don't know if I can talk too much about getting people into one or the other, but... 
Um, I think what's interesting is is how many episodes stand out for have re- having really strong themes and ideas in them beyond just the goofiness. Because people, you know, it, you kind of have the Grant Morrison syndrome with uh, Adventure Time that people see something whose visual language they don't recognize, and they say, you know, either it's crazy or it's random or it's it's on drugs because they just can't, you know, deal with surreality which is really unfortunate when you run into those people because, you know, surreality is one of the best ways to tell stories in fantasy mm-hmm. fiction. Um, and I the whole, yeah. like, one of the big influences on the show was that Pendleton Ward said that him and his animation friends always wanted to put together a Dungeons & Dragons campaign, but they never had time for it. So when they made Adventure Time, the idea was, let's make a cartoon about the D&D adventures we would have gone on if we had had the time to do it. So you get such a a hodgepodge of influences, but you also have the most incredible list of guest voice talent anywhere. Um, Like George Takei has been on, actually like half the cast of of TNG has been on pretty much as Patrick Stewart <laughs> who hasn't been on almost everybody else. I don't actually I don't think Will Wheaton has yet either. But um you know Michael Dorn who played uh Worf has been on um uh the guy who did Reading Rainbow um who played Jordy. He's been LeVar on Burton. um uh, LeVar Burton, thank you. Um and so many other people like uh, Aziz Ansari, um a whole bunch of comedians like there's uh, well, and uh, Finn's hero is played by uh, by Lou Ferrigno. There's just yeah, there's an nice. incredible cast of people and influences involved um, in the show. So you'll be watching an episode if you didn't wiki it before you watch and be like, wait a minute, <laughs> who is that? And you know, even Donald Glover, right, is the mm-hmm. is the male version of uh, Marceline. What did you think of the? Um, did you have a chance to read the uh, Fiona and Cake miniseries? Um, I haven't read all of it, but it's um, but it's incredible because Nat- Natasha Allegri is such a, a, a wild creative force, um, and you yeah. can kind of see it's nice to see her and and Penn Ward do their own things. So you kind of work out whose influence is what, and she's almost mm. the more surreal one. But what hit me was. All of these these little stories before each actual plot issue of it, um, these really heartbreaking little fables, like the how volcanoes happened, um, yeah. and the whole thing yep. about the cat and the and the nymph, and there are these yeah. these incredible little almost Angela Carter um, fables that in front of each one, and it and it's great, but it's fun to see how. Fiona navigates things um, and how she navigates the same relationships that Finn does. Um, and you can kind of see where she isn't a normative female lead. So it's kind of cool to see how her mode of femininity, um, you know, reacts to the same situations as Finn does. Because one of the key things um, in this one is she can't balance all of the different demands on her life and one of the things is how is she supposed to navigate her relationship with Flame Prince the same way that Finn is kind of like, how do I navigate my relationship with Flame Princess? So mm-hmm. it's, it's, there's such value to having 
these concurrent universes where this is how Finn deals with things and this is how Fiona deals with things, but they're never like this is how all boys think and how all girls think, but it's really Mm -hmm. fun to kind of play them and their counterparts against each other, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think issue issue five of the main series does an amazing job of her just even specifically saying, like, here's these demands that other people are putting on me, and that is what was causing this problem I'm experiencing, basically. And just, it was just, and, and the fables, you're right, the fables are beautiful, just really incredibly beautiful. Um, but I, I'm really sad that the miniseries is ending. You know, I look forward to reading Candy Papers, but I, I think it's just really a loss to not have that be an ongoing series. Um, and I really love the Marceline and the Scream Queens miniseries, too. I actually like the Marceline and the mm-hmm. Scream Queens and the Fiona and Cake miniseries better than I like the regular comics. I really like the regular comics, don't get me wrong, but I, I you know, but I, I'm really hoping that they'll bring back some more Fiona miniseries, uh, with with these particular writers who did such an amazing job with it. I you know, I, 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 I did read the Fiona and I don't and, want them really... to be an ongoing. No? No, I don't. Um you know, for kind of the same reason that I don't necessarily want Batwoman to be diluted by uh diluted by running around in every other D C comic. Um, I like that Fiona and Cake is a showcase that appears every once in a while to tell such great power pack stories. But I like the idea of them moving around the Adventure Time universe, mm-hmm. right? How Marceline the Screen Queens was great because it was a great story, but it was also like this nutty, like Riot Girl version of Phonogram because all mm-hmm. those covers were different, like riffs on that. But they also gave, you know, brought so many different female creators telling so many different. Adventure Time stories, like both in the writers and the artists, and even the people doing the the alternate covers. So, I like that they're they're hopping around. I don't think I'd want to see Fiona and Cake every single month. There's so many characters to show and to talk about that I do like that they're doing six issues, six issues like this in the satellite title, um, because oh. it allows them to clamp down and tell the best stories possible. And I love that we're getting a Peppermint Butler story because I still want to know what the hell is up with this guy. Like, what's the demonic <laughs> thing? What's the origin of this? Yeah. And, of course, they're not going to spill the beans, but I absolutely love Peppermint Butler. And if this is a thing that can only sustain kind of two Adventure Time comics at a time comfortably, then I'm okay with going on pause with Fiona and Cake to get this story and and, and to see mm. more of Peppermint Butler. Hmm. Well, I hope they come back to it at least. I mean, and it's true that maybe the reason why they're so fantastic is because they're limited and there isn't as much space mm-hmm. to to fill in. But um, but I just I just really preferred them to the other pieces. Uh, did you did, what well, did you think of the what did you think of the smoke and fire? Which was the episode? The episode where on the show where um where this season just a couple weeks. Where Finn was making Ice King and Flame Princess fight. I may have met Flame King and Ice. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Flame, Flame Princess. Princess and Ice King. He's in. He antagonizes them into fighting each other. Somehow that one slipped my mind. So I think I've only missed one episode this season, um, and I I can't think of that one. Last time I saw Flame Princess was the the Jake suit episode. 
Oh, yeah, no, she came back after that. I don't want to give it away. We'll talk about it another time. And I know that one of the other things you want to talk about. <laughs> you haven't seen I'm Sky Witch. <laughs> I know. I haven't seen Sky Witch. Um, uh, okay, so um, we should talk about a different one. Would you guys want to hear about Lazarus a little bit before we before we finish up tonight? I kinda, yeah, yeah, let's I try to get Lazarus. Both your opinions on this, because I don't think I was quite as excited as both of you. Or at least definitely Alana. Hmm. But mine was just more storytelling issues, so I, I would like to hear what both of you have to say. I think um, Ruck is a writer to follow um, because he kind of brings the same core narrative to the vast majority of the stuff that he writes. Um, I can't think of any other writer except for the guy who does um, uh, tarot <laughs> that has dedicated so much of his career to writing female leads. Um, but Ruck is one that, that does it interestingly. Um, and, and you look at his superhero stuff and his non-superhero stuff, and um, I don't want to say it's always the same, but he largely tackles the same issues in different contexts. Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of this idea of people versus institutions, usually institutions that run on state-sponsored violence, uh, or state-sanctioned violence, I should say, um, and they're us- and more often than not, they're women. So we see things... Um, like, well, in Queen and Country, right, where it's a female-led spy story and has to deal, you know, with her dealing with the fact that this is her job, this is what she does, and how participating in in that kind of violence, um, how she as a woman deals with that, right? And then you see um, in Gotham Central, you know, the question, well, how Renee ends up being the question, right, how she deals with navigating the institution of the police, Um, as a queer woman, right? And then you see Kate navigating the military and how it's similar and yet different um, and sort of what the effects of of that are. And so we're moving into, in Lazarus, again, the same general idea where the stakes are even higher. Um, And so one thing that's very interesting that we didn't really see in the others is that it really kind of feels a lot more like um, the Hunger Games to me. And not because of the dystopian future, but because her actual experience is is almost all sensory. How we're talking about the physical wreckage um, and sort of how, sort of, sorry, the, the, the mental consequences of the physical wreckage of, of being that, um, that actor of violence, the one who is, um, sanctioned to deal out violence in the name of the state or, you know, the family in this case, because it's kind of a Renaissance Italian sort of a, a setup with these kind of family state sort of deals. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you read about when she's when she's reporting her experience of these things, what it feels like to die and come back, what it feels like to get shot, um, and how she copes with it emotionally, that's, you know, largely what the strength of The Hunger Games was as a novel, right? So, I kind of don't care about the story at all. Um, to me, that's, um, and I don't mean that as an insult, but how would I put this? I think, to me, that's th- this whole world that he's created is just the space to explore this particular issue and report on this particular experience. And I'm going to read it because I want to see where he's going with the report of this experience, how she's essentially being enabled um 
you know, and, and sort of turn into this, into a drug addict um, who's called on to murder people on a regular basis because you see very early on they're pumping her full of oxy and, and God knows what else to keep her going, right? Hmm. So, yeah, that's my you know, I, for me, I, it's interesting because um, I, I really started liking the comic as soon as I began reading it. But it's a, which, which one of the things that's really interesting the way, is that his his um, the the writing he does before each issue, like the preview page, lies within the story. In the first comic, the first the first comic when you're reading the intro page, it talks about it makes it sound like the sword, who is the um, the family's protector essentially is this honorary role that that's given that means you, that your family is fully invested in you which is obviously not the case you're actually a, a servant of the family and you're not mm-hmm. like the, the chosen child but it, it treats it that different way when i first read it and the first i was thinking like did somebody else write this intro this is written by an editor who wasn't paying attention i was like no no this is rocco writing it but he's writing it as it's sort of understood within that world even though it's not actually true and then by the second issue, the intro has changed slightly, and it acknowledges that mm-hmm. a little bit more that this that the that the Lazarus is a tool, um, and that her family are being like I feel like it's going to be a I'm looking forward to seeing the third issue whether how it characterizes it because I feel like even the opening section is sort of this shifting things aren't what they seem portrayal that when I first read it I was like wait was Rucka not paying attention to his own piece but I'm like no no this is deliberate and this is an artistic choice so I think that's really interesting. I love that there's a female character who actually looks like she could kick your ass because that's pretty important when it comes to people who can kick your ass, is that they look like they can kick your ass. Um, so that made me happy. Uh, I, and um, I feel... Sorry. Mm, yes and no. I get where you're going, what you mean by that. And at one time I do want to say yes, that kind of realism is, is good and fun. But at the same time, I do think people who can kick other people's asses and don't necessarily look like they could realistically do it, there's value in that too, depending on the context and how it's played off. If they want to mm-hmm. say that she is this thing and she's a soldier um, and she's drawn you know, like a Rob Leefield woman would be fine, but I would, I would you know, stick that there. And at the same time, you know, if, if Princess Bubblegum picks up a sword and, and, you know, knocks people around with it or you know, the kind of the versions of Snow White we've seen lately where, you know, the teenage girls like kicking people's asses, you know, in Mirror Mirror and, you know, Snow White and Huntsman mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Once Upon a Time, then that has value and the ability for these characters to punch up. And they, they mm-hmm. don't look like they could, but they can. So I think, yeah, in the sense that that Lazarus, in Lazarus, the art is actually in agreement with the writing. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you on that point. And that's rare, it's very rare because artists don't usually want to draw a woman who has muscles, basically. Well, have you have you seen the the new trans character in Batgirl? I've only I've seen only her seen in her. like just the couple of issues that were the first ones, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't and feel like I'm an expert on her at all. No, but if you just look at her, um, that's the thing. Like most mainstream superior artists cannot draw trans bodies and won't want to. Because, um, like, that, that girl looks like she had, you know, two or four ribs removed during her transition. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like, she yeah, had yeah. And, and And that's absurd. Um, which is why, thinking back on it, I've thought about it over over the last few weeks, 
And I actually really stand by uh, Fraction's choice to choose the Moloid as the trans character. Because huh. even though you have two primary artists like um, Joe Quinones and Mike Allred, who they have the talent, the ability, and I would imagine the willpower to do it correctly and to, and to draw these things um, you know, sensitively and, and realistically. Um, and you see that in how they draw She-Hulk, right? But mm-hmm. um, at the same time, you know, the Moloid bodies are completely neutral, right? And the only way you can tell that it's her is because she's dressed femininely. So it says a yeah. lot about our performances of gender and the innate versus the physical, but also we're talking about a realm that cannot deal with body diversity even in cis characters, Mm-hmm. They, they just can't. No, right? they can't. Most artists crazy. cannot. So yeah. especially if she outlives, um, you know, if, if the Moli character outlives this series and Fraction, you know, he's really set it up in a way that it can't go to hell in that sense. Mm-hmm. But any and the other funny thing is almost any of the good portrayals, like drawing portrayals of like She-Hulk or even Power Girl a lot of times, are they they seem like trans representations because they always draw them. The funny thing is, even the better artists, the shoulders that they draw on, on She-Hulk or Power Girl are absurd for a cisgender woman. You I, you can do as many sit-ups, push-ups, whatever as you want. You're not going to grow your shoulders. They're not going to get that big. But it's you know when I read FF, I can almost read She-Hulk to me as a great and empowering trans character. You know, especially how, you know, she and a hyphen is part of, you know, some very um, ugly language that, that gets used huh. when talking about trans people. So it's it's this accidental thing. I'm sure nobody intended it that way. They're kind of like, and then, you know, if they listen to this, they'd be like, oh, shit, we didn't want to do that. <laughs> a lot of them would. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm sure seriously. Fraction would be like, oh, huh, you know, for some of the better writers, yeah. but... Yeah, uh, but it, like especially when guys like Quinones draw her, and she doesn't have that wasp waist, you know, because mm-hmm. when most people draw a big Barda or uh, She Hulk or, or Power Girl, um, they look like they're going to snap in half because they don't yeah. have the core Terrible. strength to support their their biceps. And of course, most a lot of you know, actually, you know, a lot of muscly characters in, in general. That's the problem. They do even draw like Superman or like Ed McGinnis. Mm-hmm. Like like oh, Ed McGinnis and Superman would snap in half. That poor guy would couldn't get off the <laughs> ground with with the with the tiny waist of these guy. He must be wearing a girdle or something. But you know, so yeah, portrayals of bodies I, and comics. Yeah, but I'm just glad yeah. to see any amount of muscle on any female character in any comic. Oh, because me I think too. That that's, that's how bad it's gotten. You know, like that's really that's really bad. Like uh, yeah, yeah. Like Lazarus looks yeah. like Gina Carano. Like totally. I would yes. I would imagine that he's yep. looking at Gina Crown. I'm not tracing. I'm not I'm not mm-hmm. saying that this is, you know no, uh no. an Alex situation, but yeah. Yeah, talk about but they I actually talked yeah. about looking at Hope Solo as an example and but yeah, it's like oh, someone who would get that. That's why she looks so that. familiar. Ha <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go rain. So I <laughs> I so, <laughs> so I totally I totally love that about it. Um, and I was, you know, the thing about this dystopian future is that it's the immediate dystopian future of tomorrow. Do you know what I'm saying? Not a lot has to change for this to be the literal truth because you already do have families like the Koch brothers and the Waltons running everything 
anyway, uh, to the point where, you know, lawmakers who believe that they're not owned by them function as though they were. And the majority of lawmakers know that they're owned by them and function as if they were as well. Um, you know, they've so thoroughly limited what's considered possible in politics to be just the things that the most powerful corporate interests, you know, in the world believe that having it just be, make, you know, move one step over to make governments completely irrelevant. And again, in this comic, they exist. They're just completely irrelevant and have it all be by families. You know, okay, that, yeah, that's the future that begins tomorrow, you know. And I was really happy to see Rucka ground the economics of this world and the economics of his story as well, you know. Um, and I, I, you got to love a comic book where the writer quotes statistics from the Economic Policy Institute, which is a fantastic progressive think tank, when they're writing about their comic book. That's pretty awesome. And yeah, I, you know, I always think that by reading dystopias, we have fewer of them. That's the, that's the goal. Yeah, that's kind of a tradition that Image Sense fell, though, um, yeah. really, in terms of, of doing that. I mean, you know, uh, Ellis, when he started that kind of back matter stuff and fell, a lot of people, you know, did that, started talking about statistics and, and that kind of stuff in terms of when they were dealing with social issues. So you can see a few guys that, um, you know, even Matt Fraction said a few things about that. And that's Fraction's what news used to be. Yeah. I'm sorry? Uh, the Fractions Nightly News was all about statistics. Like the beginning yeah. of each chapter um, would go off about media and conglomeration and and um, uh, how actually things are presented to us. I mean, it was it's amazing. A lot of – if you haven't read Nightly News, go get uh-huh. it. You'll love it. Oh, you'll love it. I'm, I guarantee it. Actually, I might have a digital copy, so remind me of uh, a review copy. Awesome. Yeah. It's really good. I have to message the folks I know at EPI to make sure they know that they're quoted in a comic book. Now I imagine that that's not something that happens every day. Unless it's Rucka, because I mean, like you know, um, yeah. In the uh, in the when Rachel Maddow wrote the forward to uh, his his Bad. Batwoman, uh, she was talking about how she was using um, issues of Queen and Country to educate senators on the the Senate. Um, what was it? The, the intelligence committee. committee wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what it was, but um, how she was using that as a diagram. Which still blows my mind uh, that she was doing that. That's that's comics leading culture, guys. Uh (laughs) There you go. (laughs) So speaking of, uh, you both probably, you'll both dig it, I think. Um, So there was actually, speaking of economics and comics, a comic that I reviewed called Paracomic, there was a Kickstarter that came out a couple weeks ago. Um, this is just more of a plug for you guys to check it out because I think you'll like it. Um, and it is the story of Michael Albert, who kind of came up with the idea of participatory economics. And like the first half of it is is kind of biography and going up through um, the '60s and all the protests and. Uh, and then the second half is all about this economic theory, which is kind of like an offshoot of Marxism in a way, but actually addresses the issues with socialism and Marxism, and it's it's pretty cool. I think you'll both like it if you can find it. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, cause economic theory is too often starts ma- mathematically and then works its way down to the street. Way more economics need to um, you know start in the street and build yep. economic models towards um 
a given goal instead of building economic models for the sake of it and then applying them and then seeing where they go. Yeah, I mean this Which so, seems to me a lot of times that's how it works. Uh so this one his his thing is um he also puts in there um uh the idea that like, you know, social interactions and is as important as some of the other stuff that's factored in with the economics he like throws in four other things and uh um his theory values uh equity, solidarity, diversity and participatory self management. Um, it, it's, it's cool. Um, it's really, really cool. I'll send you a link to the review, but it's kind of, it just reminded me of like something along the line of economics and comics that was probably not getting as much coverage as it should, but I digress. Okay. That sounds incredible. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Total tangent. No, it's something I've been meaning to read. It's something I really should read. Um, but yeah, you know, I wanted to thank everybody for making sure I read Lazarus because of the name. For some reason, the name just literally did not speak to me, and I needed to have it beaten into my head to waste the Sunday. Like, this is the new Greg Rucka book. This is a dystopian <laughs> political comic with starring a woman. You have to read it. For some reason, the name just made it hard for me to like prioritize until somebody sent me a review copy. So, thanks, Brett and. And image comics. <laughs> uh, so, Brett, you had some thoughts about it. You said you, you said you weren't as in love with it necessarily, or what was so? The... I I totally agree with everything uh, y'all said and like the, the great stuff about it. Um, I think my actual biggest issue is the pacing of it. Um, there's so much thrown out there, especially in that first issue, that none of it given the justice that I would like, and that's just kind of the part of the issue with a monthly comic. Um, where there were so many ideas present and thrown out rather quickly. I don't think any of them were given the explanation or fleshed out as much as I would like, and that's my biggest issue with it. Like, I love the concept. I love the stuff. Like, the whole timeline in the back, I was completely in, I think, with the second issue, completely geeking out about um, going through it. Like, loved it, loved it, loved it. And can't wait to see what Rucka has to say and and how he's going to say it. Um, I think my that's my only thing is I think it's so at least that first issue was so ambitious in laying stuff out that it actually kind of fell a bit short and was short shrifted. That was that's my entire negative thing about the comic. Like other than that, I love it. Yeah, I guess my thing mm-hmm. is I don't care about any of that because uh, <laughs> it, it got into her. I mean, this is just me, right? So I'm not saying yeah, I disagree with you. I'm saying that, that, yeah. that to me, because it hit so much of her actual human story and, and her perspective, that I was cool with it because I find way too much speculative fiction like this features way too much on the cool technology and things that are going on and not enough about the actual report of the characters. Um, and so you get a lot of empty dystopias where it's, it's just... Um, sort of disaster porn or um, a uh, an opportunity to just say, oh, look at these cool things, right, um, as opposed to actually using it um, effectively, using that space effectively. So, yeah, I'm okay with that. And also, I mean, he'll get to it, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Assuming yeah. that the, the no series doesn't get dropped or whatever, he'll, he'll get to it. <laughs> I love that she learns from her experience. I hate slow protagonists. I can't, I, you know, some of the protagonists, the writers write the protagonists being really slow because they don't believe the audience is going to be fast enough to catch up unless they do. I love mm. that, 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 
for, that Eve learns within the first issue to lie and who to lie to and how. You know, mm-hmm. I thought that was really, really well executed. I also thought it was smart in the second issue how they acknowledged that this family, if the family was so mustache twirlingly evil but stupid that they would just go around letting people execute innocent people, you know, without getting to the bottom of the crime, they wouldn't mm. be survived for very long. So it was nice to see that picked up again. Like, hey, at least someone in the family understands that you should probably catch the actual culprit and not just have the whipping, you know, like have someone get, get shot as like a sacrificial goat with no actual, you know, mm. who wasn't actually guilty of anything. Um you know, I think it was great. Like, I think that whole thing was great where it shows you, like, these are people who are sacrificing for you, that, that, that the workers or people are sacrificing for each other mm-hmm. and how they expect no justice and they have no expectation for justice or fairness in, in, in this system. I mean, I think that was all really strongly characterized. But I was also thought it was good to see that that story get picked up in the next issue and not have it get brushed aside. Because I, I would have probably had to explode yeah. from my head if, like, for being so stupid if people thought that you didn't need to get to the bottom of what actually did happen. Mm-hmm. I, I just I just hope maybe readers start to understand how many people have that outlook of the workers um, mm-hmm. in various contexts in the world today. And I think that's where a lot of dystopia falls short um, in that, you know, and I'll, I'll give an exa- a quick example of the last Star Trek movie, right, where they build up this whole case the whole movie is about drone strikes, right? That's what yep. that's what Into Darkness is about. It's I so obvious. It. Um, don't go watch it. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> my friends were like, this is not a Star Trek movie. It's an action it's movie. And I was okay, never mind. <laughs> well, eh, I don't know. I mean, I, it, it, it's disrespectful to me, to Roddenberry in a lot of ways. The politics, I don't think, are disrespectful to Roddenberry, but the gender and, the, and, and, and race um, issues are. But... Um, but the thing is, they build this whole case where Khan is obviously a metaphor for, um, you know, for for these targets, these high-value targets um, that they're going after with the drone strikes, uh, and that that one guy who was the American citizen, you know, because they thought he was Starfleet, he was one of their own, and so you know, the whole park behind the neutral line and, and firing those torpedoes over the line, uh, you know. It's an obvious metaphor for for drones in Pakistan, and yet they make the character this white English guy with a Sikh name. They couldn't even be bothered to portray the guy in their story the way the the guy in real life that he's a metaphor for actually is. And, I mean, to be fair, the original Khan was played by a Mexican actor, um, so that was kind of messed up, too, pretty messed up, too. (laughs) But they continued and deepened the failure instead of, you know, because obviously we know by now that Damien Lindelof hates weapons of mass destruction because, I mean, you know, that's what Prometheus was about too, part of it, right? He always makes everything uh, (laughs) about weapons of mass destruction, which is kind of cool, but he's really got to pick up on the other stuff, and so does (laughs) Abrams. We can go on forever about Lindoff and, and Abrams. I think that's like a whole other discussion because I think it would be fascinating. Right, right now my fiance is like rolling her eyes. Uh, yeah, so I've had I've had this argument with my fiance so many times about Abrams and Lindoff and their storytelling. And yeah, hmm. she's actually rolling her eyes and shaking her head. Now. Right now. 
<laughs> I can almost hear her. The eye rolling. I could feel it, and I wasn't looking at her. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, is there there are other topics we want to hit, or we kind of wrapped That's up for the night. For me. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm good. We I think we actually did manage to get it all in there. Yeah, that was that's impressive. Um I know. Ambitious <laughs> agenda we had. Yeah. And I know I've learned a hell of a lot, like and now I'm think I might have to check out my little pony and look for all of that stuff that you mentioned because I had it was been in some of its commentary. I'll um you know what? I'll email you a list of episodes. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I'll be wandering around. So cool. Uh, we actually have ninety seconds, so we definitely have to wrap up. Um, okay. okay. Awesome. So <laughs> perfect timing. Uh, so that wraps up another episode of Graphic Policy Radio. Um, no matter what the publishers dictate, enjoy what you want and enjoy the copy you read. Uh, so as always, you can catch us at graphicpolicy.com, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, etc. Um, slight plug, I will be at Gen Con this week in Indianapolis, uh, getting my geek on, so if you want to say hi, feel free. Uh, who knows how many gamers we actually, uh, listen or check the site. Um, so I want to absolutely thank Emma, uh, for joining us. It was an amazing conversation, so I, I know I learned a hell of a lot and is open to come back. Um, so yeah, until next week, I'm Brett. I'm Ilana. And have a geeky week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Appreciate it. Yay. Uh, until next time.